Turn your Bible, please, to the book of Revelation. And we come to chapter 2 tonight. Revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. May we bow together in a moment of prayer, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for what we have experienced in almost ecstasy as we thought about this could be the dawning of that day. This could be the last Sunday on earth. This might be the end of all the trials and troubles and tears and tribulations that some of your people have had to go through. But Father, if it isn't, we pray thy spirit will give his double portion to every believer through this service tonight. May this be a time of rejoicing as the Lord Jesus is exalted. And also a time of conviction when those who have never been saved come to Jesus. Oh God, trouble the hearts of those who are lost and may they come to Jesus tonight. In Christ's name, amen. In the book of Revelation, we find not the answers for the curious, but we find directions for the dedicated. It's highly questionable whether somebody who just uh, darts into the book of Revelation because they're curious about things that are going to happen in the future. And so they begin to look at page one, two, three, four, and they say, oh, I found this, look, I found this, and so on. It's doubtful if that kind of study of Revelation will be productive. More than likely, there will be confusion and misunderstanding and misrepresentation. But when the dedicated delve into the book of Revelation and ask the Holy Spirit to guide into paths of truth, then more than likely, the dedicated are going to find direction for these last days and direction for the days ahead. As we mentioned last Sunday night, there are two words that in our thinking we sometimes get confused. Those words are apocalypse and apocrypha. The apocrypha refers to those books of the, of the Bible that are sometimes included between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. They were never conceived of as part of the canon. The Jews never accepted. The early Christians never accepted them. The Roman Catholic Church placed them in, to use one of their terms, the limbo of a position between Malachi and Matthew because even sincere Catholics have a hard time with the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha represent veiled, hidden uh, sketches that are highly fanciful and more than likely are n- were never intended to be part of the inspired Word of God. Now they might be treated like Homer's Iliad. They might be treated as uh, important things to read and be aware of, but not things that would shed light on eternal truths. However, the book of Revelation is entirely different from this. The book of Revelation is the apocalypse, apocalypto, 
which means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And the first words of the Revelation, the apocalypto of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and set, signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Now, Jesus himself was given the revelation by God. Remember that Jesus, until all of his enemies are made his footstool, has placed himself under the authority of God the Father. And so in the closing book of the Bible, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, remember when Jesus was here, he said, I do not, the angels do not know when the Son of God will come the second time. And even the Son doesn't know. Now, after the Lord has gone back to glory, he's, he gives to John on the exile on Patmos Island, he gives to John a revealing of himself and reveals some things that were never revealed in the Gospels. They were never even revealed to the Apostle Paul when Paul was caught up and saw things that were eternal, things that were not lawful for a man to see, he said in 2 Corinthians 12. We see in the book of Revelation some things that had never been revealed at all about Jesus. And this scripture says, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And the phrase, which must shortly come to pass, remember, is a key phrase in the book of Revelation. And if we don't understand what it means, we'll get all confused. It does not mean which must shortly come to pass as we understand it from the point of time when the book was written. In other words, he was not saying, as this book is unveiled, as you get this message, these things, I give them to you in the month of December, so therefore by June they'll all have happened. He's not saying that. But he is saying, when these things begin to come to pass, then they will happen in such rapid-fire fashion that they will come quickly to pass. There'll not be long lapses between them. And so, as we wade into this book, a book that gives a promise to those who read it, whether they understand it or not, the only book in the Bible where there's a promise like that. Verse 3, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of the prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is at hand. As we go into the book of Revelation, we see a threefold outline, and we mentioned it last Sunday night. It's found in verse 19, chapter 1. Write the things which thou hast seen, that's the picture of the glorified Christ. We mentioned this last Sunday night, the wonderful picture of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus is not in a tomb buried in Jerusalem. He is a glorified, risen Savior. In verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like fine bronze, as if they burned in a furnace. His voice like the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth with a sharp, went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. 
Notice that his head and his hair, white like wool, as white as snow, representing divine purity. His eyes as a flame of fire, representing divine knowledge. His feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a fire, representing divine judgment upon sin. His voice like the sound of many waters with irresistible divine power. In his right hand, seven stars representing the divine call and the empowering of his preachers. And out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword representing divine judgment and the power of the delivered word of God. His countenance as the sun shining in its glory, representing his heaven glory, the heavenly glory of the son of righteousness. And John said, Jesus said, John, write the things which you've seen. And John did it. And chapter 1 holds up to us the vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ. And my friend, Christ is not pictured here as off somewhere in some side of heaven, turning his back and just letting things go along, wobble along in this earth. But we represent, Christ is represented here as active among his churches. Notice in verse 12. I turned to see the voice which spoke to me, and being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, the lampstands are lamp candles stand for the churches, representing the fact that Jesus walks among his churches today. And if you want to find Jesus, he's not off somewhere in the heavens, way off, turning his back. He is active in his church. That's the reason. When you touch the church, you touch Jesus. Do you remember when Paul, Saul, was on the road to Damascus and he heard that voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What was Saul doing? He wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus had gone back to the glory of the Father. But Saul had had papers in his pocket to put to death Christians, the church. And Jesus said, Saul, you're persecuting me. When you touch the church, you touch me. And listen, friend, when the Lord's church is bothered or touched, when people stir up hornets' nests in the church, when they touch the Lord's apple of, the, of his eye, God notices it. And you touch Jesus. You heard Jesus. Jesus walks among his churches. That's what this is saying. And we have a picture of the divine, resurrected Christ active in his church. And then he said, write not of the things which thou hast seen, but secondly, write the things which are. And immediately we move to the church age. (coughs) The church age began with the Lord Jesus. He founded the church. There's a movement. there There are people today who say and insist that the church was founded on the day of Pentecost. My friend Jesus empowered the church at Pentecost. But the Lord founded the church when he was here. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, he said to to Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples, who do men say that I am? Someone said, well, you're John the Baptist, or you're Elijah, or you're one of the prophets. And but he said, who do you say I am? And they said, "You're you're, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, Petros, a little pebble. And upon this Petra, this bedrock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus built the church on himself. 
when he was here. He founded the church. The church was not founded at Pentecost. The Lord founded the church. Jesus founded it. And Jesus has always loved the church and he gave himself for it. And so we're introduced to the church age. And we come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, I want you to see tonight, and we'll have to limit it. I could talk for hours and hours about these chapters, but I want to limit it tonight. But I'd like for you to see four churches, four women, and four promises. Four churches, four women, and four promises in the second chapter of Revelation. Now let's begin. I want to read this chapter. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them who are evil. And thou hast tried them who say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from which thou art fallen, from where thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy lampstand out of its place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, who was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews that are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things saith he who hath a sharp two-edged sword. I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat those things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name which no man knoweth except he that receiveth it. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine bronze. I know thy works, and love, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou allowest that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I, give her, I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, 
except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he who searcheth the minds and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many have, as have not this doctrine, and who have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you no other burden. But that which ye already have, hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now there are several ways to discuss the churches of Revelation, the seven churches. We could talk about we could talk about the three and the two and the two. We could talk about the three which have very little praise. We could talk about the two that have no praise, and we could talk about the two others that have no criticism. And we could divide it that way. And I'm tempted to do it, but I'm not going to do it. I want to talk about it by chapter. And so tonight I want to approach the first four churches. As we think of these four churches, let's think first of all of what those churches were, what they believed, what their problems were, and how we would like to be like them and how we are like them. Number one, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things. The church at Ephesus was active in its orthodoxy, but it has left its first love. What is the first love of the church? Jesus. Let's say his name. Jesus. The first love of the church is Jesus. Now, this church was active in its orthodoxy. It was correct. It was fundamental. It was a Bible church. It believed the Word of God. But it had left its first love, Jesus. Now, let me ask you, what was the first love of Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus left the glory of heaven to come to earth. There's a parable among the teachings of Jesus that speaks of the peril, the pearl of great price. Now sometimes that pearl of great price is interpreted as Jesus. And we say why well, Jesus was the pearl of great price. And he is so valuable, he is so precious that when a man has looked and looked and looked and looked and found Jesus, surely he'd be willing to sell all that he has and go and buy that pearl. That sounds good. Take the whole world, but give me Jesus. I won't turn back. But brother, that's not what that pearl, that's not what the pearl is. That's not what that parable is talking about. First of all, we don't ever buy Jesus. We don't ever have to buy salvation. Salvation is free. It is all by grace. The pearl of great price is the church. The pearl of great price are the believers. And Jesus left all the battlements of glory. He left all the joy of heaven. And he came to this ugly earth where there's sin and where sin abounded and where they spat on him. And they pulled his beard and they smocked him 
and they lashed his back and they nailed him to a cross and they crowned him with a crown of thorns and all kinds of indignity they did to Jesus. And Jesus bought that pearl of great price with his own blood and you and I are that pearl. What was Jesus' first love? People, people. He came all the way from glory as the man, as the divine missionary, seeking through the night for men who were restless, men who were filled with self, filled with greed, filled with sin, men who could not find a way to God. And Jesus came as the light of the world. Jesus came as the answer to a heart cry. Jesus came to buy us at great price. We are the pearl of great price. And when the Ephesian church had left its first love, it had left Jesus out, and therefore it had forgotten about the thing that was closest to the heart of Jesus, people, people. We were in Mexico, and in some city, Watuska, we went into a church. That church took a whole city block, seven stories high, marble floors, statues all around, a beautiful altar, wonderful PA system. We went in there and just looked and listened as they showed films and film strips and so on. And we thought of the people poverty-stricken people, poor people. No indoor facilities. Living in houses where there are dirt floors. Chickens on the beds. And I thought, is it possible that the church has forgotten the people. And beloved, I don't want our church to ever forget the people. Oh, God, help us to never forget why we exist. Let's never be so concerned that we keep everything so clean and spotless that we forget that we're, we exist for people. We exist for people. We used to have an old rug in here years ago. It was a brown rug when we first got this building, got those pews. We got a good deal, quote, end quote, with the pews and the rug. And that rug got holy. I mean really holy. Betty Stallnecker came tripping through here one day and tripped over a big hole in it. The ladies used to get down on their knees and darn the rug right down here. I, I'm, I'm not cursing it. I'm saying that. You know what they did to it. They took it and sewed it up. They sewed up big holes down the aisles. And somebody, preacher, some visiting preacher came here one day and he said, you know, I'm glad you have a rug that's worn out right here. <laughs> I'd never thought of it like that. I was sort of ashamed and embarrassed with it. But after that, I began to think, well, maybe that's pretty good. Maybe we're glad we have those holes. That's just a little simple illustration of the fact that we need to always remember that we exist for the people. The church at Ephesus had left its first love. 
It had forgotten what his first love was all about. God grant that we'll never do that. The church at Ephesus, orthodox, biblical, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Now there's something else. I want you to notice to the angel of the church at Pergamos in verse 12, write these things, saith he that hath a sharp sword with the two edges. I know thy works, where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. That is, there were no standards. There was worldliness in that church. No standards. What was the doctrine of Balaam? What was this church at Thyatira guilty of, uh, uh, Pergamum guilty of? Well, the, you remember the story of Balaam? <coughs> Balaam was a strange man of the Old Testament of the book of Numbers. Balak was king of Moab. And the children of Israel were marching through. And uh, Balak was afraid of the children of Israel. And so he sent for Balaam, who was some kind of a seer. Apparently, he knew about God. Maybe he knew God. He is not listed as one of the main prophets, but he is called a prophet, a seer. And in chapter 22 and 23 and 24 of Numbers, he goes to some high exalted positions in saying something about the coming of the Messiah. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Balaam said that. The same Balaam, however, was called to curse the Israelites. And Balaam said, I can't do that. I can't go curse the Israelites. Well, they're God's people. Oh, but you must curse them. So Balak sent for him and sent for him and offered him gifts. And finally, Balaam came down and he looked. He said, well, I'll just tell you, I'll go over here and pray. And he went over here and prayed. And God said, you can't do that. And he came back and said, I can't do it. I can't do that. And so Balak was furious. He was mad as hops, and Balaam went off, and finally Balak said, I know what I'll do. I'll go offer him some prestige. And so he said, uh, uh, say, Reverend Balaam, uh, I'll tell you what. We'll make you somebody in the land, and everybody will recognize who you are, and we'll elevate you a little bit, and you'll have wider influence, and you'll get a better church, and you'll be able to do more things. Reverend Balaam would you come and just show us how to curse the Israelites? Balak said, uh, well, uh-huh, let me think about that one. And so Balaam thought and thought, and he said, now, I can't go curse them myself. Here's what I'll do. I'll tell you what. I can't curse them. God won't let me. But I'll tell you a secret. Here's how to curse them. You get your young people to throw a big shindig down in the valley, and send out invitations to all the young people of Israel and get their teen boys to come down and have a big dance with your teen girls. And you get them all mixed together and get that big rock and roll music playing and you get everything going, get their bodies close to each other and pretty soon they'll be so entrenched that they'll be committing fornication and their power will be gone. And Balaam said, Balak said, okay, Brother Reverend Balaam, that's good. That's exactly what they did. And the glory of Israel faded away. God said, uh,
your problem. You don't have any standards. There's worldliness in your church. There's worldliness in your church. You're trying to be like the world. You're trying to act like the devil. You're giving in to flesh and the world and the devil. That's the problem. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the problem today among Christians. Many Christians are trying to live so close to the world and so close to the devil and feed their flesh. They've forgotten that we're to be different. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will receive you. The church at Pergamum. But what about the church at Thyatira? Look down in verse 18. Under the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine bronze. I know thy works, and love, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have few things against thee, because thou allowest that woman Jezebel, who calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants and to commit fornication and to eat things offered to idols, sacrificed to idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication. She repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed with them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent. And I will kill her children with death, and all the children shall know that I am he who searcheth the minds and hearts. And I say unto you, the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put no upon you no other burden. What about this church at Thyatira? The church at Thyatira was an idolatrous church. Immorality and hypocrisy were the rule of the day in that church. Jezebel. Who was Jezebel? Dr. Lee said she was that little wife of that toad that squatted on the throne of Israel. She was that wicked, bejeweled woman who ran the throne room in ancient Israel when Ahab was king. Jezebel, wicked in every way, became a symbol of immorality and of idolatry. In the day in which Jezebel and Ahab lived in Israel and Elijah, God's great thundering prophet, was living, Baal worship almost exterminated Jehovah worship. And if Jezebel had had her way and Ahab had had his way, Jehovah worship would have gone underground and Baal, Baal worship, which was, a, which was an, an impure, idolatrous, immoral type of worship in which there were women prostitutes and men prostitutes around the temples of that pagan Baal. Jezebel was pushing and fostering all that. Now Jesus says, uh, John, write to the church at Thyatira and say to them, they have that prophetess Jezebel working there. That is, They've lowered the standards so that inside the church there is immorality and there is idolatry and they have left the name of Jesus and they're not really honest and true to the Lord God. Somebody said that in many Baptist churches the Holy Spirit could withdraw himself and most people would never know it because we have the organization operating so meticulously and everything's going so good that if the Holy Spirit 
weren't involved, we wouldn't even know it because we don't need him because everything's going just like we organized it. That's a travesty. That's a tragedy. Brothers and sisters, we need to constantly be in touch with the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit of God telling us to do? What is the Holy Spirit saying to us to do as a church? God grant that we shall never spin things into motion and get things going so that we don't have to daily, daily, moment by moment, say, Spirit of Jesus, what do you want us to do here? What do you want us to do about this situation and this situation? Lord, what do you want us to sing here? What do you want us to do here? This leads me, and I'll come back to the fourth church in a moment, but this leads me to speak of the four women that are mentioned. Jezebel was the first of these women. The four women in Revelation represent a religious system or group. Jezebel represented corruption in the local church. Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, taught and seduced the servants of God to commit fornication. And look in verse 24. Jezebel obviously was behind this, knowing the depths, the deep things of Satan. My friend, not everything that is religious is righteous. Not everything that is churchy is Christian. And not everything that we do in our churches has the biblical authority of God. We have to find out what the Holy Spirit's telling us to do. Jezebel delved into the deep mystery things of Satan. Now, I hope you'll understand some of the things I'm going to say to you in a moment. I'm not trying to take crack shots at anybody. But there's never been a day in all Christendom when we need to be more careful about doctrine. We're living in a day of the charismatic movement. And I want to tell you, I believe there are, some, there are many, many sincere charismatics who love the Lord. I know that. But the very danger of the charismatic movement is that the thing they stress the most can be so easily counterfeited by Satan. And it is. There is a rise in the modern tongues movement in Eastern religions that don't know anything about Jesus at all. They know nothing about God, but they speak in tongues. Most of you know, I've heard J. Harold Smith's story about speaking in a meeting in Michigan or somewhere. He said some woman got up and started talking. She said, I want to talk in tongues. And she, she, she began. She took off. And Dr. Smith just let her. When she got through, he said, now, in order for it to be scriptural, we have to have an interpreter. And some man up, stood up over here and said, I want to tell you, I don't understand it, but she was speaking in pure Polish. I'm from Poland. And he said, she was speaking in pure Polish and she was blaspheming the name of Jesus and calling Jesus a bastard. And when that woman heard that, she got up and ran out. I ask you, did she do that as of the Lord? Was that of the Lord? 
That was of Satan. And Jezebel is behind, and incidentally, in much of the charismatic movement, the women are the ones that do the talking. And this woman, Jezebel, knows the deep things of Satan. That's what it's saying. And I'm not just limiting it to the charismatic movement. I'm, limiting, I'm talking about any, Amy, Amy McPherson and all the, other, all the other false cults that come along. Jezebel stresses the deep things of Satan. That's woman number one. And notice that these all involve themselves in religious things, in the church of the living God. Hold your finger there and turn to chapter 12, verse 2. And we see another woman. The book of Revelation could be studied along the lines of these four women. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered, this woman and her child, who was she? I believe, and because of the shortness of time, I cannot tarry here long, but I believe this was the nation Israel. And the child was the Messiah. And we could talk a long time tonight about the woman symbolized by Israel waiting to be delivered and how God used Israel to deliver to the world the bright and morning star, the Prince, King Jesus. Hold your finger there and turn to chapter 17, verse 3. In chapter 17, verse 3, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet beast full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. This woman is the harlot of Babylon, which represents apostate Christianity, which I understand to be the ecumenical movement in the world church. And my dear beloved friend, be very, very cautious as we approach the end of the age and all the churches try to get together either in a nucleus of organic union or even in a fellowship. There's a danger involved. Because the world ecumenical church is not the true church of the Lord Jesus. The Bible calls it a harlot. And yet it is so subtle that it would gulp up and gobble up the Lord's people. We have not time to talk about that. Maybe another night when we get to that 17th chapter we'll discuss that. Turn your Bible to chapter 21 verse 2. This is the fourth woman. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The fourth woman is the true church, the believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who come in purity, who come with their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, adorned as a bride for her husband, and we're presented to Christ, who will be with him forever. That's the believers. Those are the believers. Now I want to get back to the fourth church. The fourth church is spoken of in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. 
fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and ye shall receive, ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. The church at Smyrna was a suffering church. It was not a wealthy church. <coughs> they didn't have much money. Apparently it was not a great, huge church, but it was a church that stood for something. It was a church that was willing to suffer. And Jesus said, uh, don't be afraid to suffer. Don't be afraid to suffer. Fear none of these things. And get ready for some more suffering. The devil will cast some of you into prison. Listen, beloved, I want to ask you something. If you've run with a horseman and they've wearied you, what are you going to do in the rising of the Jordan? If you've galloped along a little while and you got a little bit weary in the Christian life and you said, oh my, I think I'm just going to quit. What are you going to do when it really gets tough? What are you going to do when they haul you off to prison and they separate you from your husband or from your wife or your, from your family? What will you do? What would you do if you'd been like John Bunyan? who while he was in prison in London, they said, now, if you recant of your faith, we'll let your wife eat and we'll let your children have something to eat, but if you don't, they'll be starved to death. What would you do? Would you say, well, Jesus doesn't mean that much to me. Let me out of here. I'll go to work and I'll take care of him. John Bunyan stepped by the stuff and he stayed in prison. And I want to tell you, it may come again to John Bunyan days. The Bible teaches that there's coming a day in this earth when it's going to be tough to serve the Lord. And we may be getting closer to it than we ever imagine or dream. And Jesus said, fear none of these things. They may cast you into prison, but don't be afraid. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. There are two great virtues in the Christian life. One is love, and I believe a second to it is faithfulness, fidelity, faithfulness. And he didn't tell us to be faithful when we feel like it. He said, be faithful. He didn't say... Just be faithful as long as everything goes okay. He said, be faithful. Be faithful unto death. A lot of us start out the Christian life and we go for a little while and we skip along. <laughs> Boy, it's a wonderful day, isn't everything right? And then <laughs> our air goes out of our balloon and we get over here and we get all defeated. And we're, oh my, this is going to quit everything. God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to get on board and get going. And I believe there's a special reward for those who, yielding their hearts to Jesus Christ, get on the line and just start going on up, 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 up. And when you hit the air, air currents and your ship goes like that, just keep on going. Keep your eyes toward Calvary. They see, the only way those air currents are going to hurt you is if you, keep your, if you look down. When you look down... Boy, you're liable to go down like that. But if you keep your eyes up in the air current, the air currents flop like that. Boy, you go up and down and up and down. You jar all over everywhere, but you're still going up. Everything's going to be all right. Keep your eyes on the eastern sky. Jesus is coming. Be thou faithful unto death. I'll give thee the crown of life. And the second thing that means is be faithful even if you have to die for your faith. When they come in a few, about a year or so ago, Brother Mel arranged a little skit at the end of school and he had the whole program interrupted by some communists that came in and tore our flag down and, and they took the teachers out and, and it was so real that goose pimples went up and down my spine and I thought, suppose that should happen. Suppose that should happen. It's happened some places. 
It may happen here. I hope it doesn't. I pray it doesn't. But Jesus said, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give thee the crown of life. The crown of life. That's the Smyrna church. I want to ask you, would you like to be like the Ephesus church that left its first love? Or the Pergamos church that had that doctrine of Balaam in it? Or the Thyatira church that had the immorality, the false doctrine of Jezebel in it? Or like the Smyrna church where Jesus said there's going to be some suffering ahead? Be thou faithful to death. I'll give thee the crown of life. I want to close tonight with speaking of four promises. The four promises. I love this. There's a song we sing. To him that overcometh a crown of life shall be. I like that. This scripture speaks four times of him that overcometh. Let me read it to you. Look in verse 7. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Verse 11, he that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Verse 17, to him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth except he that receiveth it. And in verse 26, he that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I have received my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Let me ask you something. Does this mean, does this mean that you have to hold out true to the end? And boy, if you make one false move and you fall down a little bit, that means you're lost. And you don't overcome? What does it mean? Him that overcometh will I give all these promises to. I'll give him the morning star. What's the morning star? That's Jesus. He said, I'll, I'll, I'll make you a pillar in the, in the house of God. And I'll give you hidden manna. Hidden manna. Nobody knows what that hidden manna is. It's refreshment. Spiritual food inside your soul. You will not be heard of the second death. All these wonderful promises. To him that overcomes? Well, who is he that overcomes? Hold your fingers and turn back in your Bible to 1 John chapter 5. The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Look in 1 John chapter 5 verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus the Son of God. Who is he that overcomes? The saved man. That child of God who has been to Jesus for the cleansing power and has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He's an overcomer. Not because you've got some kind of special steam and strength that says, I think I can, I think I can, I chug along, I chug along, and you just chug along. No, no. But because your trust is in the one who has already gone over the mountain and has already been victorious. And your faith is in the overcomer. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see all your old foibles and failures. He sees Jesus and the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. He sees an imputed righteousness that's been given to you through the blood of the only begotten Son of God. 
Friend, are you covered by the blood tonight? Are you God's child? Are you saved? If you're not, come to Jesus. If you are, get busy serving him. Let's pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. <coughs> Our Father, we thank thee for this wonderful truth from God's book. <coughs> we pray that somebody here who has never been saved, oh God, I plead for their souls tonight. May they see that the only way to really overcome in this battle of life is to put their trust in Jesus. And may they come to Christ tonight. And may some who have already come to Jesus for the cleansing power say, Lord, I don't want to quit. I don't want to give up. I don't want to just half-heartedly serve you. I don't want to just serve you in days when it feels good, but I want to just say, Lord, all on the altar. Total sellout, unconditional surrender. I yield all to thee. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May we stand, please. You've been awfully attentive tonight, and I appreciate it very much. You're a great congregation. I love you very much. But my heart is very burdened tonight over some people who need Jesus. If you're right here in this auditorium, you need the Lord. And I want to ask you to come to Christ just like you are. You may not have a long time to live. God may give you 80 years, or he may give you one year. I want to ask you to give your heart to Jesus tonight. Come to him. Trust him as your Savior. And friend, if you're already saved, be like that Smyrna church. Say, Jesus, I want to be faithful unto death all the way. I love you, Lord. I've enrolled in a service that's for all eternity. I don't want to be on a roller coaster up one day and down another day, but I just want to serve you. In days when it feels good and in days when it doesn't feel good, I just want to keep on keeping on. God may have called somebody in this room tonight to special Christian service. Will you surrender to him? Do what God tells you to do. And friend, if you're not saved, come to Jesus right now. If you were saved at one time and you feel like you've wandered away from God, God's right where you left him. He hasn't left you. You come back to him. Christ receiveth sinful men. Do what Jesus tells you to do while we begin to sing. We'll come.